You're listening to Season 7 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 7.2, Dragon Ball G, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, summoned along with two other kinds of Tom to save the world through the power of podcasting. And I'm Nina, new to F91 and really proud of the translation we wrote for this episode. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 611 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters. David D, Jachik B, Patrick S, Cobra Panic, Blue Sun Shrike, Lachlan C, Maugi1369, Aiden, Robert R, Dylan D, Ninx, Charles, Frank D, Corinne W, Recumbent Cactus, Eric B, Andrew, David G, The Lone Draftsman, Dapper Crow, Stephen K, and John M.W. You keep us genki. There are many ways to support MSB. Become a subscriber, make a one-time payment, buy us something from our wishlist, or write us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Links to all of the different ways you can help keep MSB going through Gundam of the 90s and beyond are at gundampodcast.com support. If you follow us on social media, you may have seen Tom and I hint at exciting announcements. Well, today is the day. Today is the launch of both our annual pin promotion and our annual giveaway contest. Every year, in honor of MSB's Podversary, the anniversary of the release of our very first episode, we create a limited edition patron-exclusive enamel pin. This year, Pins will go out to anyone pledging at least $5 per month on the deadline, Sunday, November 20th, 11.59pm New York time. For pictures of the pin and to sign up, visit GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. This year, there is one additional wrinkle. Due to rising shipping and production costs for the pins, we are revamping some of our Patreon tiers, and next year, patrons will need to be pledging $10 or more per month to receive a pin. However, current Frabo tier patrons and anyone who joins that tier by this year's pin deadline will receive a special legacy status and will continue to receive pins as long as they stay a patron, even if they don't increase their pledge. So join now. You'll receive this year's pin and secure a spot in our soon-to-be-closed legacy Frabo tier. Already a patron? Take a moment to make sure that your mailing address and payment information are up to date. I know quite a few of you have been eagerly awaiting the announcement of our now annual MSB giveaway contest, and so have I, because I have got a whole bin overflowing with prizes over here, and I am eager to get them out of our studio and into your hands. Here's how the contest is going to work this year. Earlier, we covered the 0080 War in the Pocket OVA series, It's a magnificent piece of work, one of the best of the franchise. But before the team settled on the story of Al, Bernie, Chris, and the men of the Cyclops team, 
They had originally envisioned 0080 as a series of disconnected vignettes, each episode helmed by a different director and telling its own discrete story. It's a fascinating counterfactual. What would those vignettes have been like? What stories would they have told? So for our contest this year, I want you to imagine that you are a prominent anime director in 1988. Shara's Counterattack has just started playing in theaters, and a producer from Sunrise invites you to a casual meeting at a local coffee shop or restaurant. He asks you if you would like to work on this new Gundam project they're putting together. They'd like you to write a short pitch for a story set in the Universal Century. The catch is that you only get one 24-minute episode in which to tell your story. For the contest, we want you to send us your single episode 0080 pitch. We're going to be reading a lot of these, so you are allowed to submit one entry. It should be no more than 300 words and contain no spoilers. We might read portions of these on the podcast or post them on Patreon or our social media accounts, so don't write anything that you wouldn't want shared. As usual, we will be giving away four prize bundles. One will be awarded to the entry that I like the most. One will go to Nina's favorite. One will be voted on by our Patreon supporters. And the final winner will be selected at random from all of those who have entered the contest. The prize bundles this year are the most lavish that we have ever assembled. We've got art prints by beloved fan artist Rydeth Mochi. We've got Master Grade kits. We've got SD kits. We've got Gundam on DVD, we've got Gundam on playing cards, we've got Gundam on socks. Not to mention limited MSB merch, and more. You can submit your pitch by emailing it to contest at gundampodcast.com anytime before the end of the day on Sunday, November 20th. And please include the word contest in the subject line. This week we're looking at the theatrical short Kido Senshi SD Gandamu Geki Joban Mushakishi Komando SD Gandamu Kinkyu Shutsugeki. Having never been released in English, I don't believe that there is an official English language title, but if I were to translate it roughly, it would be SD Gundam the Movie Musha Knight Command SD Gundam Emergency Scramble. We decided that in order to analyze this as yet untranslated short film, we would need to make our own unofficial amateur translation. We know many of you would like to be able to review that translation and follow along with our analysis, so we've uploaded it as a free public post on our Patreon, and you'll find a direct link in the show notes attached to this episode. Emergency Scramble was originally shown in theaters with the movie Gundam Formula 91 on March 16, 1991. It was then bundled with an all-new short and released in a home video VHS version on August 22nd of the same year. The home video release was priced at a mind-boggling 9,800 yen. Taking into account the historical exchange rate and adjusting for inflation, that would be roughly $155 today, for about half an hour of SD Gundam. Compared to the SD Gundam films that we watched back in Season 6, Emergency Scramble was created by a mostly new team presumably in part because directors Amino Tetsuro, Takamatsu Shinji, and the rest of their SD Gundam team were at this point busy working on the final episode of SD Gundam Gaiden, which was released about a week after Emergency Scramble started playing. 
Only the sound, music, and background art departments remained largely unchanged, with Chiba Koichi in charge of sound, the trio of Kenji Kawai, Totsuka Osamu, and Okada Toru handling music, and Yajima Yoichi returning as art director. The lead director and writer for Emergency Scramble was Kanda Takeyuki, a veteran of 80s sci-fi mecha shows like Galactic Drifter Vifam, Kanda also directed a single episode of First Gundam, episode 12, Garmazabi's Funeral, and he would go on to be the chief director for the 8th Mobile Suit Team until his tragic death halfway through the production of that show. The character designer and animation director was Chikanaga Kenichi. Chikanaga debuted as an animator on the long-running Dr. Slump series back in the early 1980s, and had recently made a name for himself doing character design and animation direction on the 1985 comedy series High School Kimengumi, followed by a pair of idol-themed shows, Idol Legend Eriko in 89 and Idol Tenchi Yokoso Yoko in 1990. Both of those idol shows featured main characters modeled on and played by real-world idols, Tamara Eriko and Yoko Tanaka, and both were overseen by the main SD Gundam director, Amino Tetsuro. Although I have no direct evidence of this, it is tempting to imagine that it was Amino who recommended Chikanaga for the job on Emergency Scramble. Returning art director Yajima Yoichi was joined by Nakamura Mitsuki, the background art director for First Gundam, whose impressive list of credits includes everything from Speed Racer to Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. In the voice cast, Furuya Toru, famous as Amuro Rei, plays the Command Gundam in his first appearance on screen, and Matsumoto Yasunori reprises his role as the Knight Gundam. Tomita Kosei plays the Musha Gundam in his first, and to date, only Gundam role. Tomita is perhaps best known for playing villains like Dr. Hell in Mazinger Z or Emperor Daibazal in Beast King Golion, better known as the original Voltron. Former voice of Chris McKenzie and future superstar Hayashibara Megumi is on hand to play Riplin. On the villain's side, Izuka Shouzo, the voice of Ryu Jose, plays the big boss, while Futamata Issei, voice of meek wife guy Shinshi on Pat Labor, and Ebara Masashi, future voice of Might Guy on Naruto, play his henchmen. A quick note before we start, this short's dialogue includes a homophobic slur, and there are several bits in which Riplin, a preteen, is implicitly threatened with sexual violence by the villains. Both issues come up in the podcast. Our discussion is neither graphic nor detailed, but we wouldn't want you to be caught off guard. On an alien planet, a white-haired mad scientist and his young granddaughter, Giprin, attempt to summon heroes from the void. With the flip of a switch, massive amounts of power course through complicated machinery, glowing and humming until cascading explosions fill the lab with smoke. The teleporter is empty, and the experiment seems to have failed. Until the refrigerator bursts open, and out tumble three SD Gundam heroes. They are confused and disoriented, but Riprin explains that the planet is under attack by an alien force. Every living thing has been frozen and sapped of its life force. She begs for their help, and in the end all three, Musha Gundam, Night Gundam, and Command Gundam, pledge to put a stop to the evil invaders. After fighting through a horde of Zaku-like robots, defeating a space-suited, electric-whip-wielding alien, for those in the know, it's a heat rod. And blasting their way into the alien spaceship, the hero's work still isn't done. 
Ripurin is kidnapped by the last of the alien henchmen, a lumbering, crab-like fellow, who abandons his boss and tries to make a run for it. On the way, he swings by the Tree of Life, the tree the aliens brought with them to absorb the life force on the planet. It has channeled that life force into a single, glassy, basketball-sized fruit, and he intends to take it and Ripurin with him when he escapes. Night Gundam gets onto the small spacecraft somehow and pulls Ripurin free, but she almost immediately falls into the clutches of the leader of the invasion force. If she will not give up the life fruit, the villain will swallow her along with it. In the end, it takes all three of the SD Gundams fighting together to defeat the monstrous alien. But even as he's dying, he gloats. The spaceship is set to self-destruct, so they're all going down with him. Moments later, their whole party is falling to the ground, mostly at peace with their impending deaths. They saved the planet, after all. Then who should arrive but Ripurin's grandfather in a homemade airship, just in time to rescue them. They fly off into the sunset, bringing the planet back to life. This may be one of the better SDs that we've watched so far. Not how I thought you were going to start. <laughs> um, I think you may be right about that, although I think it's also possible that the process of translating it ourselves has forced us to spend so much time with it and to get so deeply invested in what is going on that we have a kind of... Um, Sunk cost fallacy. <laughs> yeah, we have a kind of affection for it that we might not if we were just watching it the way we normally do. On the other hand, I think it is one of the better looking, better animated of the SD shorts. It's certainly right up there at the top. Also, as I mentioned earlier, this is a basically an all new team for SD. If you listened to season six of Mobile Suit Breakdown, you'll probably remember that most of the SD Gundam shorts which came out in that 1989 to 1990 window were all by Amino Tetsuro as the chief director with Takamatsu Shinji working under him. This is a new team. Neither of them are involved uh, and we have some, some fresh blood on the SD staff. It's an extremely simple story. It's an extremely simple and extremely stolen story. But this has been true to some degree or other across most of the SDs, but I really appreciate how different the three Gundam characters are, that they all have a lot of personality, quite distinct from each other, that the voice actors are clearly having a lot of fun with it, which of course listening to the lines over and over and over again in an attempt to translate them would have highlighted for me, but it really does feel like they are... Uh, Hamming it up, <laughs> as it were. Yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> of particular note is the performance of Command Gundam, turned in by Amaro's voice actor. He's clearly just having a lot of fun with this gruff, bombastic military guy and his gratuitous sprinklings of English phrases. I did have an idea for an ASMR while I was listening to this episode, and that is that there should be an entire supercut that is just Command Gundam encouraging you slash like berating you by turns <laughs> motivational asmr from the command gundam imagine walking into your big exam or the big interview with command gundam's voice in your ear going okay let's attack okay okay final shot 
Yeah, they're great. The characterization of the three Gundams really benefits from contrasting them against the other Gundams, who on paper all seem pretty similar. They're all heroic, professional warrior types. They're all very masculine as determined by their particular historical and cultural milieu, but they play against each other really well, and it brings out aspects of their personalities that we may not have seen so much of in their original settings where they fit in a little bit more. For instance, the Night Gundam is portrayed as sort of a very classic fantasy hero, sword and sorcery, save the maiden. Justice will prevail. Yeah, exactly. These kinds of um, very... Highfalutin. That's a good word. <laughs> the falute has been elevated for this guy, is what I'm saying. But in SD Gundam Gaiden, where everybody is like that, it plays very normal, and here it becomes very funny. Musha, in the original setting, we get moments of humor like the Musha Gundam being afraid of the fake ghosts in the abandoned town, but now transported into this new setting, Musha really becomes a very funny character whose medieval mannerisms are played for laughs. We haven't met the Command Gundam yet, so I can't make a similar kind of analysis for him, but uh, he, is, he is great at pulling out what is ridiculous about the other two. It's funny even without our translation, but it is a funny script. And this particular SD short absolutely benefits from knowing what people are saying. Command Gundam telling Musha and Night Gundam to continue bombarding the enemy when they don't have any missiles <laughs> and don't know what he means. <laughs> the refrain of Musha Gundam's weapons getting destroyed one after another. Ah, my family spear. Oh, my family sword. Or the fact that Command Gundam just, like, shoots constantly in every direction, hitting almost nothing. And sometimes almost hitting his own allies. One element of the short that was a little, I suppose, frustrating for me, though it makes perfect sense, is that, like with so much of the other Gundam stuff coming out at the same time, there's this expectation that you're already familiar <laughs> with the subject matter, that you have been reading the comics, or you've watched previous shows. Uh, in this case, it is comics because I was trying to translate a bit that was a bit confusing for me. And it turned out that the reason was because if you read the SD comics, you know that Command Gundam is afraid of cats. And that was a key element in this scene. He is sort of berating everybody else for getting ahead of themselves and being gung-ho about, yeah, let's go fight this enemy. And he's pointing out they don't know anything about this enemy and they're just going to charge in blind. And then he gets startled by the cat <laughs> and changes tack with everybody. It was a much harder scene to translate and much more confusing if you don't know, oh, he is terrified of cats. <laughs> and there's another bit earlier I remember where you ran into some trouble because you weren't sure who or what Captain Gundam was, but Captain Gundam is a character from the same series of comics that Command Gundam is from. Yeah, Command Gundam references or calls out to a Captain Gundam, but without knowing who that is, uh, again, a little confusing. But I would say that the humor in this short is less dependent on our previous knowledge of these characters than some of the other SDs are. I think some of the other SDs really bank on being funny because you know the characters already. This one is more of a standalone, mm -hmm. even if mm -hmm. it's not completely. 
But it's not just SD Gundam or even Gundam that the audience is sort of expected to be familiar with. Because as I was watching this, I realized that the plot, not in its particulars, not in scene to scene to scene or what the characters do or say, but the overarching plot of this galactic space villain arrives with his ship and his henchmen and plants a tree that sucks the energy out of the world and creates a fruit that he plans to eat for the sake of eternal life or good fortune or power. It's, it's not entirely clear, but he wants to eat this fruit that contains everybody's lives. And um, that kind of rang a bell. That seemed a little familiar to me. Um, and it turns out it's because that's the plot of the Dragon Ball Z movie, which in English is usually called The Tree of Might, that came out the summer before this short was released. The people making the short were not trying to hide this. They expected audiences to know exactly what they were doing and exactly what they were referencing. I was never a big Dragon Ball fan. I've seen bits and pieces of it. It's fun. But I was never super into it or super familiar with the plot beats or what happens in particular arcs or movies. But even with my minimal knowledge of Dragon Ball, <laughs> I absolutely picked up on some Dragon Ball influence in this short. Perhaps we would say Akira Toriyama <laughs> influence, mm -hmm. particularly in the color scheme and in the designs of some of the enemies. The colors include certain pastel, sort of like teal and pink that make me think of Dragon Ball for mm -hmm. some reason. I don't know why exactly, but they don't feel like Gundam colors. They feel like Dragon Ball colors. <laughs> I feel like those are colors Dragon Ball really uses a lot when it goes to alien planets. Mm, yeah. We watched The Tree of Might in preparation for this. And one of the things that stood out to us is really like the characters and the colors in Emergency Scramble look and feel like Toriyama characters and colors. They look and feel like Dragon Ball, but not that movie. Yeah, it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> even the design of the tree is very different. The scale, the tree in the Dragon Ball movie turns the world into a desert, whereas the tree in this SD short turns the world to ice, or it looks or, like or crystal, ice. It, it crystallizes everything. But then again, the clothing that the characters are wearing at the beginning when they're all getting frozen does kind of look like Dragon Ball clothing. And I want to highlight that while there is basically no direct staff crossover between the movie Tree of Might and this short, although Furuya Toru did do voices for both of them because he's also the voice of Yamcha in Dragon Ball. One of the character designers for this SD short had previously worked on Dr. Slump, which was an earlier Toriyama project. So I assume that was the character designer responsible for doing the enemies with their sort of like insect or crustacean-like bodies and faces and the rounded organicness of their ships. I was kicking myself watching the SD short one last time before we talked about it because in my translation that I put together, uh, I referred to one of the henchmen over and over again as crab baddie because to me he looked a bit like a crab. And then on my final watch through, I realized, oh, they're all insects. They're all bugs. Mm. Mind you, a crab is very close to a spider, so I'm going to cut myself <laughs> a little slack on that one. But my brain was thinking sea creatures, especially because the other henchman has that suit full of water. But they're bugs. They're definitely bugs. 
On first watch, there is a bit of a visual clash because the SD Gundams kind of feel like they fit with Riplin and her grandfather, but they really clash with the aliens. And I guess that's intentional. It creates a sense of alienation. They were summoned from another dimension. That is true, via a refrigerator. Is that like a weird science thing or the Ghostbusters movie? I, I don't know. It doesn't feel like the kind of joke SD Gundam would have come up with on its own. It feels like they're riffing. I just don't know on what. Yeah, I cannot remember. Now, it is with the villains that I think the short starts to run into a couple of problems for me. Not so much issues with the execution or the fundamentals of the story, but kind of the subtext and the implications. Because the two henchmen are both characterized in sort of broad and pretty insulting ways. The um, orange one, who Nina was referring to earlier as the crab baddie or spider baddie, he's portrayed as very stupid. Yes. Cowardly. His voice is very consciously a like rural accent. Mm. He is a poor country bumpkin who is stupid and cowardly and also a pedophile. I was going to say, he's the only one who creeps on Riprin. I was doing some reading on the Japanese side of the fandom about this short and about this character, and they basically all refer to him as a pedophile in one way or another, um, with varying levels of euphemism. If it weren't for the conflation of that with the quote-unquote stupid country bumpkin, wouldn't necessarily be an issue. Like, yes, that is very villainous to be creeping on this little girl, but then they also bring in this other stuff, and it, yeah, it gets weird. And if it were that alone, if it were just this one character, it might be less of an issue. But it's not. Because the other henchman is unfortunately uh, quite clearly queer-coded um, and not even really coded because in the course of the short, the command Gundam does use a fairly overt slur to refer to this guy. Which I think is the first time there's been an actual slur in a Gundam script. That we've noticed anyway, that we've picked up on. If you had the misfortune to watch a version of Gundam Double Zeta with the old fan subs. There are a bunch of slurs in the fan subs, but those were inserted by the fan translators. I don't believe they're in the original script, and all of the times I've actually gone to check, they haven't been. So I think this is the first time this has come up. And uh, it ain't a great legacy. For those of you who have read over the script that I posted, I did transcribe the Japanese text, what's being said in Japanese. I didn't translate it because I don't feel comfortable doing so, <laughs> but simply marked it as being a slur. The enemy is also talking in a, a high-pitched voice, using a weapon that is a whip. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's a um, sadomasochistic overtone to that whole scene. Which we've seen come up before in Villains and Gundam, and especially SD, I feel like. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't treated quite so villainously because those were more silly. But uh, even if we weren't sure about the characterization and coding, the use of the slur in the script makes very clear what they're getting at. Yeah, yeah. And then to have those be the villain's two henchmen who are explicitly contrasted with the three Gundams who are all like quite high class members of their respective societies and virile icons of masculinity, again, within their various societies. I wonder about Command Gundam, though, because the way Command Gundam speaks 
is very gruff and rough and includes a lot of what I think tonally in context is cursing, is rude language. A samurai, obviously pretty high class, and a knight as well. The command Gundam is very heroic, but I wouldn't say he's like high class. Certainly very masculine, Mm -hmm. but... Maybe not high class, but in an elevated social position. Someone who demands and receives respect. I can't remember which of us brought this up first, but it's stuck in my mind ever since that the Command Gundam is in some ways a caricature of a U.S. soldier. Oh, yeah. And of a certain kind of 80s action hero, like a Schwarzenegger or a Stallone. He's got different weapons strapped to every different part of his body. He's got the, like, serrated commando knife. He refers to his companions, his, like, friends and compatriots as, like, Kisamara. And, like, basically, like, you (laughs) Are we going to have to beep that? I don't know. (laughs) You blaggards. (laughs) In contrast to these very broadly drawn stereotypical henchmen, the boss character has almost nothing going on. Like, what could you what could you tell me about the boss? Mostly just that the boss is old. The personal pronoun (laughs) that the boss uses when referring to himself is one generally used by older men. Mm. And the the manner of speech feels a bit more like Musha or Knight Gundam, a little old fashioned, a little overwrought in the way that enemies can be sometimes. Yeah, he's just kind of stereotypical. The big bad boss. Yeah. When I first watched it, before we had done the translation and figured out what they were actually saying in a lot of these scenes, I thought the scene where he's like, he's captured Riplin and she's got the orb and she's trying to prevent him from eating it. And he's like, oh, if, if you're not going to let me eat it, then I'll just eat you as well. Um, based purely on the visuals, there's an element of like sexual menace in that scene that isn't really carried through in the dialogue. Well, but that also included some lines that I was not entirely sure about their translation. And might have had double meanings. Yeah, might have had additional meanings or nuance that I didn't pick up on. Mm -hmm. I mean, the conflation of consumption with rape and rape with being consumed, like that's a that's a thing. And he's got his like freaky tongue hanging out. Yeah, his like forked tentacle tongue. And her taunts back at him sort of seem to ignore the fact that she would be dead and to instead talk about like how disgusting he is. Like he's so gross that if he tried to swallow her, she kind of like assumes that she would get out, but like not even a bath would wash the stench away because you're so disgusting. Yeah, yeah. and, and again, that sort of conflation of like sexual violence with pollution. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Pollution of the self, of the spirit, rather than like littering. <laughs> so, yeah, the amount of this short that turns on um, this like 12 year old girl being put into situations where she's in danger of being kidnapped, molested, or worse, uh, not great. Don't love it. Kind of par for the course for SD Gundam, unfortunately, as is the sheer number of different scenes where we can see up her skirt. Is it awful that I'm so inured to that I didn't even notice? I think it's a protective mechanism. (laughs) So I'm not just enraged all the time. 
There is a very nice little speech from, I think, Command Gundam and Musha Gundam when they are admiring how fiercely Dean is resisting this enemy, that even though she is in massive amounts of danger, uh, she's still taunting and fighting and determined. She's more of a hero than either of them are. Yeah, she puts us to shame. My favorite moment was probably the scene in which the Night Gundam somehow manages to get on uh, Crab Batty's escape ship. His little flying saucer. Yeah. And Crab Batty's like, how did you get there? <laughs> what? Uh, and he breaks out the girl and he's just going to jump off of this ship. And the Batty's like, what about me? It is the fate of evil to perish. <laughs> Saraba. <laughs> Farewell. So good. Yeah. I love that really scene. Good, really Very good. funny. And then later his buddies being like, you're alive. Yeah. Night Gundam, like, keeps falling off of things or being thrown away or like some way or another he is removed from the fight and then returns at the most crucial heroic moment before i change tacks a little bit do you have a favorite scene well you you took my favorite scene oh okay um, we both we have the same favorite it's okay for us to have the same favorite it was really good i don't know i really like when (laughs) musha is like oh but i don't i don't have any weapons wait i have my family's traditional headband of strength and he puts on the headband and he grabs the... Um, and he ankle picks yeah, the, he, <laughs> the enemy. <laughs> he grabs the the big boss by the ankle and like judo throws him. But as he's doing this, his internal motor has to go into hyper overdrive. And we see a huge cloud of steam and they play like a train speeding up sound effect. And a train whistle. Yeah. So that's that's the best moment for me. When, the, when there's a train there. Just has to be different. Couldn't just say my favorite is the same as your favorite. Nope, can't do it. I would break the podcasting code. Changing tack briefly from more of a industry perspective. There was a long period in the United States where it was very normal for there to be short cartoons, newsreels and the like played before a feature film. Because we are talking about a time when movies were shorter on average than they are now. And if you were going to the movies, you really wanted your money's worth. Like this was your afternoon. This was a half a day of your weekend. Mm -hmm. And you wanted as much entertainment out of it as you could get. And so, you know, double features and short program and so on. I don't know what it was like in Japan. We know there were shorts played before Shark's Counterattack. This short got played before F91, and at this point, we are in the early 90s. At what point do they stop including short features (laughs) ahead of movies in these theater releases, if ever? I I assume, I mean, was there there a short program ahead of Hathaway or ahead of Kukuru's Doan? I mean, I didn't get to see those in theaters in Japan, so I can't tell you. Mm. I do know of other examples from around the same time period as Shars Counterattack or F91 that did have short films to lead them in. So I do assume it was a, a quite common occurrence. And in this case, F91 is a pretty long movie. It's a full two hours. Yeah, it's it's comparatively long. That's why I did mention the averages earlier. Mm-hmm. And the SD shorts are particularly well suited to being, you know, 15 minutes ahead of a film presentation. Uh, Where else and how else would you show these SD shorts? (laughs) But tonally, they're so different. 
there's so little that connects them other than both being distantly related Gundam properties. It's a bit like Musha saying, oh, are we from the same clan? All of our names are Gundam. Are we the same thing? Uh, very distantly, Musha-san. <laughs> very distantly. We are, however, talking about a period when SD Gundam was really at the height of its popularity and regular Gundam was not. And it's entirely plausible that those short films were actually seen as a way of attracting people who might not have otherwise been interested in the movie. Gundam F91 is whatever, but I gotta see, I gotta see a team up of my favorite SD Gundams. I'll just leave after the first 15 minutes. And they did put the names of the three SD Gundams in the full title of the short, so mm -hmm. theoretically you would have known going in, ah, this one is gonna have Night Gundam, Musha Gundam, <laughs> and Command Gundam. This, the, the title of this short film is such a nightmare. <laughs> the last thing to say about this is I keep trying to put myself in the headspace of somebody who had never seen F91 and is sitting in a theater and they've just watched this short. I'm trying to imagine the mental state that that creates when F91 starts playing. Oh my god. <laughs> the tonal whiplash. So if you're going to be watching F91 in advance of next week's episode when we start talking about it properly, you may not be able to watch this particular short, but try to find something of about 15 minutes that is very silly and inconsequential, and try to imagine that headspace. And has a happy ending. Something with like a funny, happy ending. Yeah, with cats and a blimp. <laughs> then go watch F91. In preparation for this season's World Events update, I reviewed my notes from the last couple of seasons and realized I meant to do a history update last season, and then I didn't. The Season 5 update covered the approximately one-year gap between the release of Shars Counterattack on March 12, 1988, and the release of the first part of War in the Pocket on March 25, 1989. This season, I am playing catch-up, and will cover world events from during War in the Pocket's initial release, through the run of SD Gundam we covered in Season 6, and up until the release of F91, just about two years, from March 26, 1989 to March 16, 1991. The year is 1989. It's the first year of Heisei. Hirohito has died, and Akihito been enthroned. In one year, the Diet has three different prime ministers, Takeshita Noboru, Uno Sosuke, and Kaifu Toshiki. Takeshita was forced to resign due to the ongoing recruit scandal, a case of insider trading, bribery, and corporate and government corruption. Uno resigned after the one-two punch of a personal scandal and political failure. I found two different accounts of the scandal. In the first, a geisha he'd been seeing revealed he had refused to pay the fees he owed her or the customary parting gift when their relationship ended. So, a bit like not paying your contractors. In the second version, Uno attempted to bide the silence of his former mistress. She revealed their affair anyway, and the public outrage was over his womanizing. Either way, it left him in a shaky position. For a Gundam connection, a news article about this affair is included in the newspaper that shows up in the last episode of 0080 because they just snipped out some bits from the front page of the Japan Times for a particular day in that July, I think, 
and um, stuck it into the, the morning newspaper. Uh, and one of those articles is about this exact scandal. Then, in the 1989 election for the House of Counselors, the Liberal Democratic Party lost their majority and with it their control of the House for the first time in the party's history. Remember, they were founded just after the occupation ended. This upset led to Uno's resignation and the resignation of his entire cabinet. Finally, there was Kaifu Toshiki, who managed to stay prime minister until F91 came out and a little beyond into November of 1991. 1989 also saw the Nikkei 225 index of the Tokyo Stock Exchange reach its all-time record high. That year, the top 10 banks in the world were all Japanese banks. At the peak of the bubble, the estimated value of land and real estate in one small ward of central Tokyo, Chiyoda, was estimated to be greater than that for all of Canada. The 1.15 square kilometer area of the Tokyo Imperial Palace grounds, also in central Tokyo, had an estimated value higher than all the land in the entire state of California. Japanese companies were buying iconic U.S. companies and real estate. Sony acquired Columbia Pictures, Mitsubishi bought Rockefeller Center, and a consortium of Japanese investors purchased the Pebble Beach Golf Course. Japan went from being admired for its post-war recovery to being viewed with fear and suspicion, and, quote, Americans reportedly perceived Japan as a greater threat than the Soviet Union. The value of the yen fell against the dollar, and the bubble started to burst as land prices in Tokyo and adjacent areas stagnated or fell. Initially, other urban areas were unaffected. The government introduced Japan's first-ever consumption tax, and the Bank of Japan announced a major interest rate hike. The bubble economy had made the rich richer through rampant speculation, but lowered the standard of living for everyone else, and combined with frequent corruption scandals in the government, banking, and corporate worlds, class conflict and resentment was on the rise. Alongside economic inequality and political upheaval were social fears. Lawyer Sakamoto Tsutsumi, who had successfully led a class action lawsuit against the Unification Church, yes, that Unification Church, and was, at this time, leading a similar lawsuit against Aum Shinrikyo, disappeared, as did his wife and their infant son. They were murdered by members of Aum Shinrikyo, but this would not be confirmed nor their bodies recovered until 1995. There was concern over an epidemic of violent crime, sparked by horrible and sensationalized cases like the otaku murderer and the abduction and murder of Furuta Junko by a group of teenage chimpira, or low-ranking yakuza. Crime was called the American disease and attributed to U.S. influence, with some room for the other usual suspects. One headline from that time refers to, quote, the devil children of the comics and video age. Delinquency rates were up, and so was unemployment. While Emperor Hirohito's death marked the end of the Showa era, other deaths felt like the end of an era in their own way. Manga creator and animator Tezuka Osamu, god of manga himself, died of stomach cancer. God of management Matsushita Konosuke, who, with one lightbulb socket design, started the company that would eventually become Panasonic, and who enjoyed international recognition for his work in management theory, also passed away. 
as did composer Watanabe Takeo, who composed music for First Gundam. And more and more World War II veterans died, including Genda Minoru, a Navy pilot and early advocate for focus on aircraft carriers, who participated in the planning and preparation for the attack on Pearl Harbor, logged over 3,000 flight hours during the war, became a far-right politician after the war, was caught accepting bribes from Lockheed Martin in return for government arms contracts, and caused an uproar in Japan when, quote, in response to a question from the audience at a speaking engagement in the United States, he said he thought the Japanese would have used the atomic bomb if they had had it. This was the year that Kiki's Delivery Service was released, as was the first Dragon Ball Z movie, Dragon Ball Z Dead Zone. Alfred J. Quack, Dragon Ball Z, Jungle Emperor, Pat Labor, and Ranmahath were all on TV. 1990, or Heisei 2, saw the release of the Super Famicom, or Super Nintendo, video game console, as well as two more Dragon Ball Z movies, The World's Strongest and The Tree of Might. Osaka hosted the International Flower Exposition with the theme of Harmonious Coexistence of Nature and Mankind. 83 countries and 55 international organizations participated, and over 23 million people visited the expo. The yen continued to weaken against the U.S. dollar before strengthening slightly in the second half of the year. From its all-time peak the previous year, the Nikkei 225 index dropped precipitously, losing 35% of its value from January to December. Stock prices had officially collapsed. Yet asset prices in Tokyo stabilized, and asset prices in other major urban areas continued to increase. The Japanese government was the third largest defense spender in the world. Deaths that year included Kikuchi Shunkichi, a photographer famous for documenting the aftermath of World War II bombings, particularly in Tokyo and Hiroshima. Takayanagi Kenjiro, an engineer who built the world's first all-electronic television receiver before working in TV technology development for NHK and later JVC, and Kanemoto Shingo, a voice actor whose credits include projects like Space Battleship Yamato, Fist of the North Star, Astro Boy, Doraemon, Maisoni Koku, Lupin III, and the second Mobile Suit Gundam compilation movie, in which he voiced Kozun Graham. Then there was Higashikuni no Miya Naruhiko o, General Prince Naruhiko Higashikuni, an imperial prince and career officer in the army, the uncle-in-law to the emperor Hirohito and husband to one of Emperor Meiji's daughters, he authorized the use of poison gas in China during the Japanese invasion and occupation, and quote, encouraged and enabled human experimentation on civilians and POWs. He also opposed the war with the Allied powers, was part of the conspiracy which ousted General Tojo, and towards the end of the war, planned to depose Emperor Hirohito, install the emperor's son Akihito as emperor, and serve as regent himself. He went on to be Japan's first post-war prime minister, serving just two months in the role. Born in 1887, he was 102 years old when he died, and had lived to see four different emperors on the chrysanthemum throne. The first couple of months of 1991, Heisei III, would see the debut of the boy band SMAP, who would go on to be one of the era-defining pop idol groups, and JSDF involvement in the Gulf War. The economy was in an odd place, no longer booming, but the bust hadn't quite hit. 
Before the year was out, asset prices would begin to fall, part one of the economic decline that characterized the lost decade of the 1990s. The end of the boom was an inflection point on public perception of quote-unquote freeders. The word freeder comes from the English word free or freelance, and the word arubaito, which comes from the German arbeiter, and in Japanese means part-time work. Coined in 1987 by Michishita Hiroshi, editor for a part-time job magazine called From A, a freeder is a worker who works fewer hours, less than full-time, and earns hourly pay rather than salary. They usually have lower income than salaried workers and don't receive job benefits like holiday pay, sick pay, or paid leave. But in return, they have greater free time to enjoy life, work on personal projects or hobbies, and explore alternative and probably more fun employment options. When the economy was booming and unemployment was low, there was nothing wrong with being a freeder. But as the economy went into decline, freeders were viewed as symptomatic of various social ills and as a burden on society. As for the rest of the world, the death of Hu Yaobang, the former chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, precipitated the Tiananmen Square protests in Beijing. Burmese opposition leader Aung San Suu Kyi was placed under house arrest to be released in 2010. Vietnam announced the withdrawal of the last of its troops from Cambodia, ending 11 years of occupation. A coup attempt in the Philippines was crushed by U.S. intervention. Riots broke out in Hong Kong after they began the forcible repatriation of Vietnamese refugees. Violence in Kashmir and clashes between Indian troops and Muslim separatists in the region caused many Kashmiris to leave the area as refugees. And the Sri Lankan civil war was ongoing. Many parts of Europe saw the end of communist control in what are now called the 1989 revolutions. They had names like the Singing Revolution and the Velvet Revolution and the Peaceful Revolution. Don't let the names fool you, they weren't all peaceful. National communist parties were ousted or reorganized, new opposition parties were established. Protests and demonstrations gathered hundreds of thousands of people. The Berlin Wall fell. The Cold War ended. NATO and the Soviet Union entered talks to decrease the number of short-range nuclear missiles in Europe and U.S. President George H.W. Bush and Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev finalized a treaty to end chemical weapon production and begin destroying their stockpiles. In 1990, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union voted to end its quote-unquote monopoly of power, the first step toward multi-party elections. Boris Yeltsin became the first-ever elected president of the Russian-Soviet Federative Socialist Republic, and Gorbachev was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Perestroika, the opening of the Soviet economy, led to the first McDonald's opening there in 1990 and several other U.S.-based stores that same year. Within the space of that one year, an agreement was reached on German reunification, the unification happened, and Germany became formally independent from its post-war occupiers, East and West. The First Nagorno-Karabakh War continued, with pogroms against ethnic Armenians in Baku, Azerbaijan. The implementation of a new poll tax caused riots across Britain, and Margaret Thatcher's tenure as prime minister and leader of the Conservative Party ended, after over a decade in each. There were several high-profile bombings and assassinations by the IRA and the Provisional IRA. And the Birmingham Six, who had spent years in prison for allegedly bombing a public house in a Provisional IRA attack, 
were freed when police were found to have fabricated evidence in the case. Ruhollah Khomeini, founder of the Islamic Republic of Iran, leader of the 1979 Iranian Revolution, and supreme leader of Iran since 1979 and the end of the monarchy, died in 1989. At his state funeral, mourners almost destroyed the casket trying to get a last look at the body or get a piece of the shroud. In 1990, a stampede in a pedestrian tunnel leading to Mecca during the Hajj killed 1,426 people. The leaders of the Yemen Arab Republic and the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen announced the unification of their two countries into the Republic of Yemen. And the Gulf War began. Iraq announced formal annexation of Kuwait, the UN Security Council ordered a trade embargo, troops were amassed in the region to prevent invasion of other neighboring countries. The beginning of 1991 saw Operation Desert Storm begin and end. The aerial bombing campaign was followed by the liberation of Kuwait, and most U.S. troops left the Gulf by the end of that March. South Africa's general election in 1989 was the last held under the apartheid system. And in 1990, Nelson Mandela was released after 27 years in prison. The first Liberian civil war began. And Namibia gained independence from South Africa after decades of armed conflict. In the Americas, Chile held its first free elections in 16 years. Inflation in Argentina set off riots and looting, and there was a military coup in Haiti. The U.S.-backed Contras, fighting the government of Nicaragua and largely based in Honduras, were still active, despite increasing pressure from the governments of other Central American countries for their disbandment. And in Colombia, after a judge, a provincial police chief, and a presidential candidate were murdered, authorities arrested 11,000 suspected drug traffickers. In response, the cartels declared total and absolute war against the Colombian government and began a campaign of bombings and arson attacks. The United States invaded Panama, primarily to remove de facto leader General Manuel Noriega. The reasons they wanted to remove him and the situation in Panama are too complex to explain here, but if you have heard jokes about rock music being used for torture, they may be a reference to this saga. Noriega eventually took refuge in the Vatican's diplomatic mission to Panama City, and U.S. forces played loud rock music directly outside 24-7 until he surrendered. Allegedly, the music's purpose was to, quote, prevent parabolic microphones from being used to eavesdrop on negotiations, and not as psychological weapon based on Noriega's supposed loathing of rock music. Oliver North was convicted in the Iran-Contra scandal in the United States. Army General Colin Powell became the first black chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and David Dinkins became the first black mayor of New York City at the same time that hate crimes and racial tensions were increasing around the country. The United States Flag Protection Act took effect, with protests in Seattle and New York City and flag burnings on the steps of the U.S. Capitol building in response. A crisis in the banking sector, the U.S. savings and loan crisis, led to nearly a third of the over 3,000 savings and loan institutions in the country becoming insolvent and led to the largest federal rescue to date. On the culture, science, and technology fronts, the wreck of the German battleship Bismarck, sunk in 1941, was located. The world's largest indoor amusement park, Lottie World, opened in Seoul, South Korea. The Nintendo Game Boy was released in North America 
and the Nintendo Company celebrated its 100th anniversary. NWA's album, Straight Outta Compton, released in 1988, reached 1 million copies sold. 1990 was a FIFA World Cup year. Italy hosted, West Germany won, defeating Argentina in the final, and it was the first broadcast of digital HDTV. The Dalai Lama won the 1989 Nobel Peace Prize. A workplace shooting in the United States led to a high-profile lawsuit against pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly over allegations that their drug Prozac had contributed to the rampage. The shooter had begun taking Prozac one month prior to the attack. In a world first, Denmark legalized civil unions between same-sex partners. And the next year, the World Health Organization removed homosexuality from its list of diseases. Motorola released the Microtac cell phone, at that point the smallest of all time. The first tests of analog HDTV broadcasts were conducted in Japan. And the first commercial dial-up internet connection in North America was made by the unfortunately named The World STD, an acronym for software tool and die. There were plenty of other early internet developments, including the first ever internet server and the test for the first web page, conducted by Tim Berners-Lee at CERN. Steve Jackson Games was raided by the U.S. Secret Service, and their legal support was provided by the newly formed Electronic Frontier Foundation, an organization devoted to educating lawmakers and shaping policy around new computer technology. For example, did police need a warrant to view someone's emails? At the time, no one had settled the issue. There was a first attempt at genetic modifications in humans, a gene tagging trial. The Northrop Grumman B-2 Spirit Stealth Bomber made its first flight. An official news agency in the Soviet Union reported a UFO landing. NASA's Voyager 2 made its closest approach to Neptune and Neptune's moon Triton. And NASA launched the Galileo Orbiter to study Jupiter and its moons, though it wouldn't reach Jupiter until 1994. A research satellite, the Solar Maximum Mission, or SolarMax satellite, which had launched in 1980, re-entered Earth's atmosphere and burnt up over the Indian Ocean. 1989 marked the last sighting of a golden toad in Costa Rica, and shortly afterwards, they were classified as extinct. Increasing awareness of the harm caused by greenhouse gases led to calls for global reductions in emissions. In 1990, the trial of the skipper of the Exxon Valdez began. The skipper was accused of negligence that led to the second-worst oil spill to date in the United States. Meanwhile, Exxon filed suit against the state of Alaska and the Coast Guard. The digging and excavation crews from either side of the English Channel Tunnel met in the middle, although the tunnel wouldn't be fully completed until 1994. A group of six explorers from six different countries completed the first-ever dog-sled crossing of Antarctica as part of the 1990 International Trans-Antarctic Scientific Expedition. And the best-preserved Tyrannosaurus rex specimen ever found was discovered by Sue Hendrickson in South Dakota, USA and is named Sue in her honor. There you have it. Somehow, those two years feel as though they have enough history for 10. Countries forming and breaking apart, revolutions, ethnic and racial conflict, and the end of the Cold War, most of the Gulf War, the bursting of Japan's asset price bubble and beginning of the lost decade, the early internet. In ways both exciting and frightening, the world was changing fast, 
And when audiences took their seats in darkened theaters to watch Gundam F91, it wouldn't just be their past experience of Gundam shaping their impressions, but also the zeitgeist. I mean, it's like the old saying, there are decades where nothing happens, and then weeks where you find a really cool Tyrannosaurus Rex. Next time on episode 7.3, what happened? We begin our research and discussion of Gundam F91 and the first chapter in a new era of Gundam. Gundam Formula 91. A bad first impression. Where are we? And more importantly, when are we? Vaguely gesturing in the direction of a love triangle. Mustache era. Excuse me, what? Who? But why, though? Like Greek drama, much of the action happens offstage. And... Come on, Nina, say the line. What line? You know the line. After images with mass. This is only the beginning. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is His Last Share of the Stars by Dr. Turtle. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to hosts at GundamPodcast.com. And thank you for listening. With Gundam's international popularity on the rise, there are now more opportunities to share your wrong Gundam opinions than ever before. So get out there and tell some stranger that the best solution to every problem is to summon three totally clueless weirdos with impressive titles and then let them bumble around until the problem goes away. That's why management consulting firms exist. Musha Gundam, Knight Gundam, Command Gundam, McKinsey Gundam, What are you, some sort of monster? Yes. Oh no, I'm in danger. It's starting to sound dirty now. <laughs> uh, well, it wasn't my intention, but I can see where you where you got that from. Now we're recording. <laughs> this is episode 7.2. Sorry, I'm having a hard time this morning. Is this where you make your big doozy bots reveal? Oh. <laughs> um, I, I, <laughs> I wasn't prepared to. Okay. Well, it doesn't have to be now. I was just... Uh, yeah. It sounded like you were maybe gearing up to it. No, no. This is not about Gundam. This is about podcasting. But I'm noticing how... It, uh, 
took us a little while to get warmed up, to get back into the groove. We were out of practice with doing talkbacks, and mm -hmm. it shows early in this recording. <laughs> but we're back. We're back. I can feel it. Hey, we're back. we're back. It didn't take all that long. <laughs>